0: Early on October 29, 2012, Tropical Storm Sandy, churning through Atlantic Ocean waters in an easterly direction along America's eastern seaboard, hit a high-pressure cold front and curved north-northeast. It was a left turn that became a left hook, aimed straight at the ribs of New Jersey. Sandy's center made landfall at 7.30 that night at Brigantine, just north of Atlantic City. Its storm surge and 80-mile-per-hour wind gusts delivered an uppercut to New York City, a lethal blow that was cloaked in darkness.
1: It, it, it was so dark, but now that the sun is coming up, I can kind of see the extent of the damage. Lots of tree limbs everywhere. There's a large tree down at the Silver Tower's apartment complex on Houston Street.
0: Many the combination of a huge tropical storm colliding with a massive cold front at high tide during a full moon meant we were in for something that no one alive had ever experienced in the New York metropolitan area. There's a boat, a yacht in my front yard. It's the second one in a half an hour that has floated by my house.
2: My first floor
0: is completely flooded. My front yard is a raging ocean. New York City's much-vaunted 24-7 subway system, 656 miles of it, were shut down. All three area airports were closed. Mayor Michael Bloomberg ordered mandatory evacuations of low-lying and coastal areas. Millions of people lost power. Our region... Hunkered down, and WNYC was on the air, live, watching and waiting with our listeners. The only thing we have working is a transistor radio.
3: It is all times the only
0: thing we have
3: coming um, around all again.
0: All internet services out. All electric is out. No cell phones. Nothing is working down here. More than one hundred people in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut lost their lives to the storm. Most due to drowning. The material damages were massive. Sandy would become the second costliest hurricane in U.S. history after Katrina, leaving assessed damages of $65 billion. And as we're learning, the emotional toll is still being tallied every day by those putting their lives back together.
4: We've gotten callers and texters who actually say, I'm only realizing now the effects that Sandy has had on me.
0: You're listening to Life After Sandy, one year later I'm Amy Eddings. We've been following this story for a year now, reporting on Sandy and its aftermath. Our look at life after Sandy starts with WNYC's Janet Babin. Janet, you did a coast check in January and May of this year, traveling from Cape May, New Jersey, all the way to Montauk, Long Island. What's your overall impression of how these very disparate communities are coming back together after Sandy one year later?
5: I think what we're seeing, Amy, is that there are still pockets, still to this day, that have yet to recover. And we're trying to track why that is. There's apparently a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, uh, a lot of uh, federal regulations that were put in place after Katrina to stop any kind of waste. Um, But residents are finding uh, these rules and regulations hard to deal with.
0: Let me push back just a little bit. This was an unprecedented storm. Are we suffering from high expectations here? I mean, in in some ways, aren't we really exactly where we should be still trying to figure a lot of this stuff out because of the extent of the damage?
5: Perhaps it's true on paper, Amy, that we are exactly where we should be. And yet, as I traveled up and down the coast and I saw, as you said, disparate communities still struggling, people still not in their homes, still without utilities 12 months in, Uh, it's hard to imagine life like that. It's completely disruptive. Families have been separated. Um, People's lives are shredded because of uh, this work not being done.
0: Fielder Avenue is one particular block you've honed in on. It's located in Ortley Beach, part of Toms River Township in New Jersey. What made you choose Fielder Avenue as one of these stubborn pockets where things just are not going well?
5: You know, Amy, soon after Sandy, I went down to New Jersey uh, when many areas were disaster areas, and um, a lot of places weren't allowing people to come in, no reporters, no residents. It was dangerous. This was a complete disaster area. Um, But I was lucky enough to make it on to the barrier island where Ortley Beach is, And uh, I found that I could get onto Fielder Avenue, and it was one of the days when New Jersey was allowing residents back to that region just for a few hours to check on their belongings in their homes. I managed to connect. I saw that this was one of the most devastated parts of the Jersey Shore, and we found some great people, and we decided that this would be our marker. This would be our uh, measuring stick uh, as to how uh, the recovery was going.
0: Okay, Janet, use that measuring stick. How is the recovery going on Fielder Avenue?
5: Well, Amy, I was there a few weeks ago on a stormy Friday afternoon, and you go up and down the street, and to be honest, not much looks different from three or six months ago. There are still vacant lots. There are still homes that have been abandoned, haven't been touched since the storm, I caught up with a couple, Barry and Ileana Ingram, that we first met about a year ago when they were shoveling out from three-plus feet of sand that the storm had dumped in their front yard.
6: On, work out. My workout. <laughs> My Why? I did all that?
5: When Sandy hit, the couple lived year-round in a two-story house a half-block from Mortley Beach, and Barry stayed to ride out the storm. And the house was going like this. Boom, 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 boom.
7: And there was stuff in the basement hitting the pipes like a submarine going, boom, 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 pitch blackout, wind out.
5: The house took on about nine feet of water and remains uninhabitable. Like many who were devastated by Sandy, the couple hoped to be back in their home by summer. On a stormy Friday a few weeks ago, I went to Fielder Avenue to check on their progress. Up and down the block, little has changed since summer. The vacant lots and abandoned homes give the block an eerie, desolate feel. The Ingrams are farther along than most, but they still have a lot left to do.
6: Welcome to our home. (laughs)
5: Thank you. Ileana laughs because she still has studs for walls and plywood subflooring to walk on.
6: (laughs) When do you think you'll move back in? Well, right now I'm waiting on my permit for plumbing to hook up water and sewer, it's going on three weeks. And when you submit it, they tell you five to 20 business days.
5: Iliana says obtaining the required permits has been a full-time job. But Tom Kelleher, the mayor of Tom's River Township that includes Ortley Beach, says his staff is approving permits as fast as possible.
3: There's a minimum of
7: a 21-day turnaround, okay, because it has the plans have to be reviewed. Zoning has to make sure it doesn't violate any zoning ordinances. We're not going to let the place be rebuilt with a hodgepodge.
5: But it's not just permits. Thousands of residents impacted by Sandy have a laundry list of complaints about the pace of recovery. From the changing federal flood maps that held up decisions on how high to rebuild to delays or denials from insurance adjusters, to languishing grant applications. In February, Governor Christie announced that New Jersey had received $1.8 billion in federal aid money that would be funneled through the state. Most of it, he said, would be money that residents wouldn't have to pay back.
8: Our goal on this first section of the money is to use it predominantly for homeowner grant program and a small business grant program. Notice I'm saying grants, not loans. We know that a lot of our homeowners already have debt.
5: More than 15,000 people applied for these large grants, up to $150,000 per family. But the state admits a year since the storm, just 100 applicants have received a grant, a tiny fraction of the more than 15,000 who applied. But when it comes to federal disaster loans, the numbers are reversed. WMYC's data news team found that of about 85,000 applications for small business loans, all but 100 who applied have received their loan. That difference between grants and loans is plainly seen on Fielder Avenue. The north side of the beef block has 20 homes. Besides the Ingrams, most of the few other properties on Fielder even close to being habitable are rental properties run as businesses.
4: They were gutted to the ceiling. And uh, we had six and a half feet of water in here.
5: Towards the end of the block, John Rominski rents out a three-unit ranch house. He says the only reason he was able to rebuild these units is because he received a $128,000 federal loan from the Small Business Administration.
4: We weren't able to get any free money, okay, Uh, no grants or anything like that. We didn't have flood insurance, which really hardly anyone did. So we went to the SBA.
5: But Rominski says the loan took months and he had to jump through all kinds of hoops. Grant applicants have had the same trouble, but they're still waiting for money. Attorney Adam Gordon with advocacy nonprofit Fair Share Housing blames New Jersey's Department of Community Affairs, which administers the grants.
9: This is the major program to help people rebuild and elevate their homes, and the federal government gave its approval to spend this money back in April, so we're not really sure what they're really saying here.
5: Fair Share has filed a lawsuit seeking more information about where the federal funds are being distributed in New Jersey. In an email, Lisa Ryan with the Department of Community Affairs blames the rebuilding grant delays on the hoops that the federal government makes residents jump through, like excessive documentation and numerous on-site inspections. She said an additional 200 applicants will receive their grants before the end of the month. The program also eased restrictions on what contractors residents could hire to do the work. But that still leaves thousands of residents in limbo, possibly approved, but still waiting on money from these grants. On Fielder Avenue, the Ingrams say they got this far by cashing in their life insurance policy. Even now, Ileana says progress is measured in small victories.
6: We got a new sliding
10: door. You could take a peek if you want.
5: Out the door, their back deck is higher up than before. You can hear and see the ocean now that their home's been elevated. But the Ingrams still have a long way to go before they move home and begin to enjoy that view. For WMYC, I'm Janet Babin.
0: Sandy destroyed people's homes, businesses, and property. But it did more than that. It wrecked their sense of themselves, their place in the world. New Jerseyan Lambros Flahakis is trying to reclaim it with a little ritual. Every day, he gets into his truck and drives across the bridge connecting Tom's River to the beach community of Seaside Heights. He pulls up to the empty gravel lot where his home once stood and checks his mailbox.
8: I don't know why I do it. I have to do it. It's just something I have to do. I go to this house every day, you will see my mailbox is up. So all I have is a mailbox. That's it. There's nothing else on the property which you will witness. I go from a you know rental home that I have to pay for, then to check my mail every day because I want to go home every night. I want to go home. I want to go home and stay home. Or at least I can say I go home every night. Just to check the mail. That's my lot. That's my shed. That's what's left. And there's my mailbox. And it was a it was a house. Here, right here, here was my front door. This was my front door right there. This is my walkway. And this was my front door right there. This was all water. Every house here was a house My mailbox. <laughs> That's my same old mailbox. I took it off the house and I hung it on the wall, so they can deliver my mail. I do every night. Nope, no mail.
0: Up the coast from New Jersey's seaside bungalows, a different kind of housing stock was particularly hard hit in New York City: its public housing developments. Many of these high-rise complexes were built along the edges of the city in communities like Red Hook and Coney Island. The restoration of power and repairs came slowly for these city-owned properties. Residents lived in cold, dark apartments for weeks. Twelve months later, WNYC's Ilya Meritz reports the storm-damaged buildings are still relying on temporary boilers to provide heat and hot water. And that has residents worried
9: as the winter approaches. Hamel Houses is a cluster of brown brick apartment buildings. It's right under a flight path to Kennedy Airport. And seen from the air, the houses would look like 14 off-kilter crosses staked on the narrow Rockaway Peninsula. Almost 2,000 people live here. And for almost a year, they've found hot water is unreliable and unpredictable. Here's Catherine Darby.
11: Once in a while, you get hot water.
7: We don't get hot water over there.
9: She says to draw a bath, she sometimes has to boil water on her stove. But the next step is not easy. Darby uses a walker. I have to put it on this and get it to the bathroom. So you put the hot pot of water on your walker? Yeah. And walk it over? Uh Uh-huh. That's what I do. It's a lot, but if you want to
2: wash up, you don't want to be smelling, you got to wash.
9: So why do residents have to heat their own water? A lot of people think it has something to do with this a rented mobile boiler set up outside the boiler room that flooded in the storm. Basically what I'm looking at is a big temporary plywood house, and right next to that is a truck that says Holman Boiler Works. The truck has Texas plates. Steam billows out of a valve in the underbelly, and the ground is wet from dripping water. It looks temporary, but also kind of permanent. I mean, there's already grass growing up under the wheels of the truck. That shows that it's been here like a whole season. This worries Carmen Munoz.
6: When the winter coming, I don't like that. I want a hot water in my house. Heat.
9: Across the public housing system, not one of the 23 mobile boilers installed after Sandy has had a permanent replacement.
12: I think that the city dropped the ball on this one.
9: Lucy Newman is a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society.
12: Twelve months after the storm it appears that in the buildings that really were hit badly, that nothing's been done.
9: Newman and I went through the list of buildings with temporary boilers and tallied the residents. So Redfern has 1,641. Okay. And Surfside has... It comes out to over 10,000 people in Rockaway, Coney Island, Red Hook, and the Lower East Side. Months after many private homeowners installed permanent boilers, people in public housing must rely on a stopgap, Cecil House is general manager of the New York City Housing Authority. He says it's not fair to compare public housing with private. Family homes take mass-produced boilers. Big housing projects need to have them custom built.
1: It's a much more complicated engineering effort to design that boiler, have it actually fabricated, and most of them are fabricated on site, and calibrate it, test it, hook it up to the system, and then have it actually take over and carry the load.
9: And there's work to do even before that. The authority doesn't want to lose any new boilers in the next big storm, so a solution has to be devised for each individual boiler room. And that hasn't been done yet.
1: The boiler room in Hamill is below ground, uh, and it's flooded. So our effort will be one of two solutions. One is to either waterproof that room or to build a separate boiler room for that location.
9: At a higher elevation, where floodwaters won't reach it. Either way, the fix will take time.
1: I would not expect the solution to be in place for this heating season, and it may not be in place for the next heating season, but it would clearly be in place after that.
9: So, Hamel houses may not have a permanent boiler until late 2015. Meanwhile, House says the temporary boilers are actually performing very well, better in some cases than the old boilers. He's asking anyone who loses heat or hot water to call in their complaint right away. He says the agency will make them a priority. That was
0: WNYC's Ilya Meritz. Stay with me. I'm Amy Eddings. You're listening to Life After Sandy, One Year Later. Coming up next, a conversation with host Brian Lair. This is Life After Sandy, One Year Later. I'm Amy Eddings. Joining me is someone who was with me in WNYC Studios through the evening of October 29th, 2012, when Sandy made landfall and the full brunt of her force was being felt across the Jersey Shore, New York City, and along Long Island. And that's Brian Lair. Hi, Brian.
3: Hi, Amy and Knight will obviously never forget.
0: We're still feeling the repercussions of Superstorm Sandy.
3: People are still digging out, and that's one of the ways that The media uses an anniversary, hopefully for good, not just to wallow in, you know, the disaster tape of a year ago, but to point out what has not yet come back together and for whom.
0: What lessons have you learned through this year from that evening, Brian, and going forward from what you've heard from your listeners throughout the year when you've talked about Sandy on your show?
3: Maybe the biggest thing that stands out for me a year later, Amy, is how an emergency demands community. When the power went out for so many people's computers and televisions, we had so many listeners to WNYC because you can listen to the radio on a battery, obviously. People seeking weather updates and emergency information, of course, but also people who didn't want to be alone. And we were their connection. You know, we can build all the high walls we want and we should. We can bury the power cables underground and we should, all that technical stuff. But the more community is strong, the more likely people are to survive a disaster. Another thing that the media said a lot around Sandy time was that this storm did not discriminate. It hit rich areas. It hit poor areas. We were all one in being subject to nature at its most fierce. And to some degree, it was true. Certainly, there were upscale homes devastated in Bell Harbor and things like that. But for the most part, the more I saw and heard, the more I came to believe that for the most part, it sorted us by how privileged we were before the storm. Wealthier homeowners on Long Island had generators, poorer ones did not. Battery Park City was well defended. Public housing projects in Coney Island were not. The young and healthy and well connected to community could often scramble their way to someplace else. The old or sick or isolated. Could not. Here's one moving and extreme example from some days after the storm. Our guest was Bob Dennis, parish manager at St. Margaret Mary Catholic Church in Midland Beach, Staten Island, talking about unidentified people who had been killed by the surge. One of the other things that that, uh, they're not releasing is the number of people who are unclaimed because they were illegal immigrants that were living in Midland Beach. Unclaimed bodies? Uh, Yeah, now we we uh in speaking with, with uh firemen who live in the area who actually did a lot of the rescue and the removal. Um, they were taking they were taking bodies and placing them in in Midl uh Miller Field in a refrigerated trailer and then That's where they they kept them until they were identified. So that was, Sandy, for some immigrants here illegally. Death by storm surge and their loved ones too afraid to come forward and claim their bodies. You may want the undocumented to self-deport, but nobody wishes this on them. So for me, one of the biggest lessons to learn is to rebuild and plan for future resilience in ways that are super sensitive to the most vulnerable among us.
0: Brian Lehrer on Lessons Learned, what he's been hearing from you during his show on WNYC, heard weekdays at 10 a.m. on 93.9 FM and AM twenty. Thanks so much, Brian. You're welcome, Amy. One out of every 10 New Yorkers is disabled. On a normal day, these 900,000 residents take advantage of this world-class city with the help of elevators, wheelchair-accessible buses and accessoride vans, and a host of other services and accommodations. But Sandy showed New York City is not equipped to protect its most vulnerable residents in an emergency. Advocates for the disabled have sued, saying the city's emergency plans violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. WNYC's Robert Lewis has been looking at the case.
13: I'm Vivian Lee. And I'm Cheryl Wills with the New York One Minute. Mandatory evacuations are now in effect for residents of low-lying...
2: One year ago, just hours before Sandy hit... Mayor Michael Bloomberg addressed a nervous city from an evacuation shelter on the Lower East Side. But the
1: most important thing I can say right now is if you live in Zone A, you must evacuate. We have a plan to keep you and New Yorkers safe. If you follow that plan, we'll get through this storm just fine.
2: But that plan didn't work for everyone. In the chaotic days after the storm, stories emerged of people trapped in darkened high-rises struggling to survive. This was WNYC reporter Marianne McCune in a piece that aired November 1st last year. McCune was helping an 87 year old woman stranded in a housing project to call her best friend.
11: Oh, it's raining. Hello? Doris? Yes. Um, there's a reporter from the news helping me out here. Bernice was trying to get you. You can't get me because I, I don't have no phone, no light, no nothing. To what you- What I can't do, can't
0: do nothing.
5: The two start to go back and forth, arguing about whether Mrs. Maynard should leave.
11: I can't come down the steps because all the lights are out and whatnot. What am I going to do? You know, I can't walk too good.
2: Now, many of the people trapped in such situations were young and healthy and chose to ignore the evacuation orders. But Julia Pinover says the city didn't do enough to evacuate and shelter thousands of elderly and disabled residents.
14: During Sandy, we saw... People with disabilities suffering tremendously and unnecessarily, in part because the city was terribly unprepared and confused about how to serve this population.
2: Pinover is an attorney with disability rights advocates. The organization is suing New York in federal court, alleging the city's emergency plans are inadequate for people with special needs. People like Joyce De La Rosa.
10: I'm in a wheelchair because I have an orthopedic bone defect.
2: De La Rosa lives in an apartment in Kipps Bay, just outside of Zone A, with her daughter, who is also in a wheelchair. They stocked up on groceries and prepared as best they could for the storm.
5: You know something? I still have my emergency supply
10: food over here.
2: But they weren't ready for the prolonged power outage after Sandy. Della Rosa uses an electric-powered oxygen machine at night. Without it, she gets headaches, her body hurts, and she can't sleep.
10: My daughter wanted me to go to the hospital right away, after 24 hours. Because she said, Mommy, you know you can't sleep and um, you're going to have trouble breathing, you know, so she was really concerned.
2: After three days without her oxygen machine, she finally called an ambulance. Advocates say the city had no plan to check on people like Della Rosa. Emergency personnel didn't start going door-to-door until 10 days after the storm hit. And the city's program to help evacuate the homebound might as well have been non-existent. It evacuated fewer than 100 people before Sandy hit and was never restarted after the storm. Those are just some of the problems flagged in the lawsuit against the city. Again, Attorney Julia Pinover.
14: We brought this lawsuit because people with disabilities in New York were scared of what was going to happen during a disaster.
2: The lawsuit was actually filed in 2011 after Hurricane Irene, but the case didn't go to trial until this past March.
14: The lawsuit is kind of amazing because if you read the complaint, it reads like a play-by-play for what happened during Sandy to the class of persons with disabilities who we represent.
2: It's only the second lawsuit of its kind to allege a local government's emergency plans violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. The advocates aren't looking for money, but want the court to force the city to improve its plans. Sam Bagenstas, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School and an expert on disability law, says people across the country are watching the New York case closely.
15: I think it's a very big deal. I mean, I think these are really life-and-death issues for people with disabilities. uh, And this is a case that establishes the principle that people with disabilities, like everybody else, have to be fully accounted for in emergency preparedness
2: actions. City officials declined multiple interview requests, but they did provide a prepared statement saying the city's emergency planning, quote, "...takes care to incorporate the needs of people with disabilities." But the Department of Justice apparently disagrees. The feds weighed in on the case in May, siding with the plaintiffs and urging the judge to rule against the city. Law professor bagenstoss says such filings can carry a lot of weight.
15: I think it's a very significant event when the Department of Justice makes a filing like this. The Department of Justice is the agency that's responsible for enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act against state and local governments, and they have a special responsibility to tell the courts what the law means.
2: It means, even in an emergency, the city needs to provide equal access to services for residents like Melba Torres. This
10: is my role.
2: Torres has cerebral palsy. She's maneuvering her 500-pound battery-powered wheelchair through her small New York City Housing Authority apartment on the Lower East Side in what was Zone 8 the area most at risk of flooding in a big storm. She left this apartment before Irene hit in 2011 and went to a city shelter with her aides.
10: I have to tell you that it was not equipped for us, for somebody in a wheelchair. They had military cots, so I stood in my chair and put pillows to prop myself.
2: She spent the whole night upright in her wheelchair, trying to sleep, and if that wasn't bad enough, The shelter's bathroom door was too narrow, so her aides had to carry her into the stall. She says it was embarrassing.
10: Because then everybody else that was trying to go to the bathroom would just stare at us, and they asked us a couple of times why it was taking us so long. So at that point, I really felt singled out.
2: Despite the experience, Torres says she was willing to evacuate again during Sandy. But she says she didn't get a notice to evacuate until 5.40 p.m. the night the storm hit, less than three hours before her building's elevators were to be shut down. And she didn't have time to line up transportation that could take her wheelchair.
10: We were still here. Um, The elevators had been shut down. So at that point, I was thinking, oh, dear God, how am I going to come down? I live on an eighth floor.
2: Hours later, the power went out leaving Torres and her aide in total darkness.
10: <laughs> A total fear came over me and I just cried because I felt trapped. Her
2: story was part of the case against the city, which went to trial in March. That trial raised serious questions about the city's emergency plans. It turns out, the city didn't really have a way for disabled people to get information during the storm other than 311, which was overwhelmed and had wait times of 26 minutes on October 31st. The city also failed to stockpile shelters with items for the disabled, like meals for diabetics. And testimony revealed officials didn't even know how many shelters were accessible to people in wheelchairs. In the past year, the city has tried to figure out which shelters are accessible. And a city task force recently recommended making door-to-door searches for the vulnerable standard protocol. But Pinover, the disability rights attorney, says she has seen little change.
14: I haven't seen any improvements in the plans over the past year. So I, I think if a hurricane were to hit tomorrow, we'd see the same thing as we saw during Sandy.
2: Advocates and others are waiting for the judge to issue his opinion in the case. It could come any day now. They say it's worth noting that while the city has few detailed plans for helping the disabled, it does have a plan for some other vulnerable residents. The city has a 133-page disaster animal response plan with a detailed search and rescue protocol for pets. For WNYC, I'm Robert Lewis.
0: A year after Sandy, it's still not business as usual for many business owners. Gigi Liaguno Doors restaurant was demolished by Sandy, Every day at lunchtime, she's aware of what she's lost.
13: I'm the owner of Jacob Bob's Bay Restaurant in Union Beach, New Jersey. Um, My original restaurant was destroyed in Superstorm Sandy. We are sitting at our temporary location about a mile up the road from our original spot. We are on the tail end of lunch, and we sit here in a pretty quiet restaurant. Before the storm, our other location was much bigger, um, right on the water, so it brought in a lot of different people from a lot of different areas. Here, you know, we're off the bay, we're not on the water, and there's not a lot of people left in town, so it is much quieter. I am out of my mind. I am used to running around like a nut, so I fill my days with trying to find how to get different things into the town, different donations, different organizations to try to help us rebuild. Right now we're in the kitchen and, you know, the guys are prepping some food for tonight for dinner. We did put a TV in the kitchen for them so they were lucky, so that's what I hear right now is I hear the TV. I don't hear the dishwasher going, I don't hear the pots going, I don't hear the grills going. What we're normally used to is not what we're hearing. So is, you know, as they say, you know, you're your new normal. I'm not really particularly crazy about my new normal. I prefer my old one.
0: The new normal is something that every displaced person has had to define for themselves. Last year, during Sandy, Sherelle Manuel and her kids escaped rising floodwaters that flowed along Beach Channel Drive in far Rockaway, Queens. The surge destroyed their rented apartment and ruined their belongings. Their family was among several thousand in New York and New Jersey who were uprooted after Sandy. They are still without a home. WNYC's Kathleen Horne reports their endless limbo is another kind of disaster.
11: Okay, hi. My name is Cheryl Manuel. Um, We're at the Manhattan Inn at Times Square.
12: Manuel stands in her cramped hotel room on the thin strip of carpet between two double beds. Piles of clothes, shoes, and toys are stacked along the wall. The 46-year-old with the carefully combed, cinnamon-colored hair says she's trying to stay positive since fleeing the storm. But it's hard.
11: They took us to a shelter, which was Hellcrest High School in Queens. So we was there for like a month.
12: After sleeping there on cots, the family moved to a shelter in the Bronx. Then began their stint of rubbing elbows with the tourists in Times Square. Since last November, they've had to hop from one midtown hotel to another, five moves in all.
11: They brought us to the Paramount on 46th Street and 7th Avenue, and we was there to um, February 12th. And then February 12th, they moved us to the Manhattan, no, the Park Central.
12: So you can see we still have stuff in the bags. Along the way, Manuel says they stopped unpacking. The exception... Dozens of Betty Boop and Smurf figurines sprinkled around the sixth-floor hotel room to cheer the place up.
11: My name is Nadja, and I'm
12: seven, and it's hard. um trying to go to school the mad um, early. Nadja is the youngest, and they wake up at 5.30 in the morning to make the two-hour trip to her school in Far Rockaway. Manuel's older daughters live down the hall. 22-year-old Diamond Williams keeps two important things to the family in her room the microwave oven, and Fifi, the pet rabbit, they managed to save from the floodwaters. The bunny sleeps in a cage near her bed.
11: Diamond's high. That's the moody one.
12: Diamond sports a gold scarf wrapped around her head. She says you'd be cranky, too, if you had to exist on fast food chicken and hamburgers. I gain weight.
11: <laughs> because we've been eating greasy food every day. We can't cook. We got to eat the same thing over and over. So it's like... We're not used to that. Like, my mother used to cook Monday through Friday and Sunday. Before we moved here, I used to come to Town Square to go to movie theater. Now I think when we move out of the city, I will never come back. Like, we've been here for a year.
12: Manuel says the thought of finally moving is what's keeping her going. She says the long-term uncertainty has been harder to heal from than the initial trauma of the storm.
11: In this whole situation, nobody never asks us about how you're doing mentally. You understand? That's the most important thing. And if they didn't care about me as a mother, what about the children? What about them talking to the kids and
12: finding out they're right? The city says about 175,000 people received some form of post-storm counseling through the Department of Health. Manuel has found counseling on her own. What the family says it really needs to heal is a more permanent home. But anyone who's ever searched for an affordable apartment in the city knows how tough that is. Housing advocates say there's about a 1% vacancy rate in the five boroughs, even lower for places that are considered affordable. And Manuel says if you're a Section 8 tenant, forget it.
11: They think all Section 8 people destroys property.
12: After months of looking, Manuel recently found a three-bedroom duplex back in Far Rockaway.
11: This is what I was looking for, you know, it's big. Um, a backyard for my baby because that's what she keep asking about. She says, I
12: want a backyard so I can put a slide in a swimming pool. Even though she has a copy of a signed lease, Manuel's hopes of moving into her new digs by the anniversary of the storm were recently dashed.
11: They're not sure if they're going to give me an apartment, so I've been calling the landlord all day, having heard from her, and like right now I don't know what to think.
12: She says the landlord was thinking of renting to another family.
11: It's, it's been a journey and I've been trying, but it's hard. It's like I've been on a marathon and then I got to the end, and then now it's like it start all over again.
12: Cheryl Manuel received a call from her caseworker this week, saying the landlord agreed to give them the keys. She and her kids hope to move in on November first. In the meantime, they're being transferred to a less expensive inn in Queens. The family is among the last 100 households to vacate the hotels. For WNYC, I'm Kathleen Horn. Of the more than
0: 100 people who died in the tri-state area because of Sandy, most of them were on Staten Island. Thirteen people died in one square mile of its eastern shore, which faces the Atlantic Ocean. The area includes the communities of Midland Beach and Ocean Breeze, where WNYC's Jim O'Grady has been checking in with Sandy survivors to see how they're faring.
16: Until last October, Santo and Gail Lisa had spent 30 dry years in their house in Ocean Breeze. No wave had ever come close to cresting the raised boulevard that lies between them and the beach. But then Sandy pushed a white-capped surge of water down their street. Santo says it flooded their basement in no time.
7: If you've ever seen white water rafting,
16: that's how fast it came in. Boom, boom. He ran outside and heard a voice from across the street. I'm standing on my back deck. And I'm hearing her, please help me. We're at the spot where Santo and Gail stood that night. The cry was coming from a house down the hill. He recognized it as the voice of Diane Norris, a 65-year-old woman who lived with her 89-year-old mother, Ella Norris. Now it's dark, and
7: she's saying, please help me. And I'm saying, where are you at? So she showed me a flashlight.
16: Santo was less than 100 yards away, but separated by a rush of water 12 feet deep. I says, you
7: know what? I'm gonna get you help. Well, if I can't get there, I called nine one one at least five times, and they kept on telling, "We're gonna get somebody there. We're gonna get." Somebody. I says, "Listen, I'm a fireman. I know what's going on here." I says, "I cannot get there, no matter what. You need a boat, you need a helicopter, or something. This woman's gonna die." They never got here.
16: Santo, a retired firefighter with thirty years experience, thought about roping himself to his deck and then launching across the water to the Norris' house.
7: But it was like grasping for straws because I know what I'm capable of. And I'm not a bad swimmer, but I'm not a great swimmer. I would have to be surfing down there. You would have found me in the swamps at the end of the night.
16: It didn't matter. The rope was in his basement, and the basement was underwater. And now the water was pushing up through the floorboards. So Santo and Gail climbed up to their second-floor bedroom. They later found out that Diane and Eleonora spent the night clinging to each other as the water rose around them in their dark living room. Before dawn, Ella told Diane, I can't do this anymore, and died in her daughter's arms.
7: Mother was 89, and I'm pretty sure that water was cold as ice. At 89 years old, I don't think you have the same resistance.
16: The next day, a neighbor named Big Frank rescued Diane from her house. She has since moved to Goshen, New York, about an hour north of the city.
11: It's almost a year, and I miss her like the same day it happened. I miss her like crazy. My heart
16: is still broken. She's still recovering from the trauma, and so are Gail and Santo, who are burdened by survivor's guilt. It was horrible. It was
7: the horriblest thing. All that we've gone through, I never had the feeling in the pit of my
16: stomach that I couldn't help. And anger at the wreckage that the storm brought to their neighborhood. Weeks after Sandy hit, Gail would still find herself sitting outside her house crying. But when someone tried to comfort her...
5: I would just lash out, and, you know, I was like a wreck, and I was more like ranting and carrying on, and, and I was mad at everything and everybody.
16: I ask Gail, if the storm is an act of God, then who could she be mad at? She shakes her fist and says, that's who she's mad at, God. <laughs> I'm mad at him. <laughs> she can laugh now, but it's taken time. Right after Sandy, the couple moved in with her sister while their house was repaired. That's when Gail sought counseling.
13: I do group. I do one-on-one. I'm on medication. I'm doing much better. I don't cry every
5: day (laughs) anymore, and I'm laughing a little bit more, so I'm grateful for that.
16: She's not alone. A Gallup survey showed that clinical diagnoses of depression increased by 25 percent in people living in zip codes most affected by Sandy. Christian Burgess is with the Mental Health Association of New York City.
4: That 25 percent increase, according to the study, represents about 540,000 adults, and it doesn't even take into account kids or milder
16: mental health effects. The study came out in January. But Burgess says it's safe to assume that many people in our area are still suffering psychologically.
4: We've gotten callers and texters who actually say, I'm only realizing now the effects that Sandy
16: has had on me. New York State estimates that its crisis counseling program has been contacted a million times by people affected by Sandy. And media coverage of the storm's first anniversary is likely to stir up emotions in survivors.
4: It exposes them to memories, sights, sounds that might take them back to the disaster. And if they've had struggles in the past year, that can trigger flashbacks, nightmares.
16: In Ocean Breeze, about half the houses on Galen Santo's block have been demolished and their inhabitants have moved away. But those who remain want to remember their loss. Two weeks ago, Galen Santo joined other neighbors for a memorial service at the end of Buell Avenue. A small stone marker was placed in the ground flanked by flowers and American flags. Engraved on the marker were two names, James Rossi, a neighbor from around the corner who drowned in the storm, and Ella Norris. Diane Norris was also there.
11: It was an honor to be honored that way for my mother with the stone and the guards with their rifles and all the people and the politicians. It it was a beautiful, beautiful memory.
16: For WNYC, I'm Jim O'Grady.
11: Floodwaters
0: also severely damaged several public schools on Staten Island. Some students had to switch to a different school. Some students' families had to move altogether because their homes were destroyed. It meant big changes to kids' after-school routines.
6: My name is Francesca, I go to IS-2 and I'm in eighth grade. My name is Ashton McCarthy, I go to IS-2 and I'm in eighth grade. We used to hang out every single day going to the park and now it's not every single day going to the park. When I go back to the the old neighborhood where we always used to hang out, we used to play football on the streets, play baseball on the baseball field, like manhunt in the forest. There's nothing left. You see the beach. There's no more trees. Two people live back in their normal house and three of us are in different places so I'm the farthest away I'm living in Tottenville so it's a 45-minute bus ride we normally go to Dunkin Donuts often that's like I'd say where we go the most is Dunkin Donuts Subway and this pizza place by my house but it doesn't bother me because I know that I see them every day when I come to school and I talk to them outside of school on like social networking and like Uvu and Skype. So that's how I know, like we talk all the time and that's how I know our friendship's still strong and stuff.
0: I'm Amy Eddings. You're listening to Life After Sandy, one year later. So what are we going to do to avoid this kind of upheaval in the future? Stay with us. Matthew Sherman's been following those plans, and John Hockenberry looks back and looks ahead. I'm Amy Eddings. It's Life After Sandy, one year later. In the year since Sandy hit, many big thinkers and civic groups have come up with grand plans for preparing New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut for the next big coastal storm, one that scientists assure us is coming, and coming more regularly. Many of those ideas will take years and lots of money to put into practice. WNYC's Matthew Sherman takes a look at six things that are already different 12 months out and five that are
15: not. What's gotten finished since Sandy? Lots of quick but limited solutions. Next time a big storm comes, for instance, you'll see scores of temporary walls between four and seven feet high going up around big office buildings in downtown Manhattan including at 17 State Street, a building right across from Battery Park. The property manager there, Deloy Stoll, is ready to put up a fight.
13: This is the primary line of defense. We have a secondary line of defense where we hardened all of our points of entry, and uh, a tertiary line of defense is also being designed.
15: The product she purchased is called Aquafence, Adam Goldberg's the New York representative for the company. He set up the plywood wall with a crew one morning earlier this month to make sure it fit. Then it was put away in storage until the next storm hits.
7: We're looking at 450 linear feet of aquafence.
15: Goldberg says he's gotten 21 orders for the aquafence since Sandy.
7: As the water approaches the barrier, the way the barriers are set up, the weight of the water actually compresses down on the lower panel, uh, creating a seal that actually gets tighter as the water gets higher.
15: Another thing that's changed. New York City Deputy Mayor Cass Holloway says...
1: We've replenished and expanded our stockpiles.
15: If disaster strikes again, the city's got hundreds of baby cribs, wheelchairs, adult diapers, and cartons of Pedialyte for its evacuation shelters, items that turned out to be in great demand during Sandy. Number three, remember how the Con Ed plant on East 13th Street flooded? And most of lower
1: Manhattan blacked out? The most recent report has approximately three-quarters of a million New Yorkers without power.
15: Since then, the utilities built up the wall around the relay station there, three feet higher than Sandy's surge. Number four. There are some parcels that Mother Nature owns. She may only
4: visit once every few years, but she owns the parcel.
15: New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is giving a little bit of land back to Mother Nature. Maybe we should say a very little bit of it. Still, the state has bought a handful of potentially several hundred properties in Staten Island's Oakwood Beach neighborhood. The land is to be left as open space to buffer future floods. Number five? In a few neighborhoods along the coast, you can now see more houses... On stilts, house jacking crews like Ducky Johnson house movers are lifting up the structures above the the floodplain. And for the sixth thing that's changed since Sandy hit, here's New Jersey Governor Chris Christie.
8: If you were hoping to get some, you know, six-figure payment uh, for the loss of your precious view, I think the Supreme Court put a stake in that today.
15: In July, the state's highest court ruled against a couple— that wanted money because a dune had been constructed in front of their oceanfront house. A sign that protecting the public for the next hurricane is gradually trumping personal property rights. But all those things and more really just scratch the surface of what experts say has to be done. Now, for five things that haven't changed. Starting with the thousands of people across the region who still aren't able to move back into their damaged homes. This is where the chateau was. Meet Bill Owens of Staten Island. He used to live four blocks from the ocean. 85 years, uh, that home was in my family. He's looking at a vacant lot where his two-story house once stood. It was so damaged, he tore it down.
8: The house was only two feet off the ground, and I didn't want to rehabilitate this house and possibly take a chance on having this happen again.
15: He plans to rebuild... This time, nine and a half feet off the ground. Looks like he won't be home for the holidays this year, either. Just takes time. Where time
8: for me and you might be one or two days. Time in city language is one or two months.
15: The second thing that stayed pretty much the same since Sandy... About 50 years ago, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers unveiled plans to protect coastal neighborhoods like where Owens lives. Dan Mundy Sr. remembers the plans for the Rockaways.
1: This big seawall 18-foot above sea level for eight miles, levees and dikes around Jamaica Bay.
15: But those barriers never got built for various reasons.
1: What if that plan had been put into effect?
15: The Army Corps is expediting new studies but the coast will remain vulnerable for the foreseeable future. Number three, surveys suggest that only about a third of Zone A residents actually left their homes before Sandy hit. Jay Baker, a hurricane evacuation expert at Florida State University, predicts the city's still going to have a hard time getting many more people to evacuate next time.
1: People who didn't get flooded, whose neighborhoods didn't get flooded in this case, those people aren't likely to learn too much from other people's experiences. That is, they're not likely to say, gee, that could have been me. Fourth
15: thing that hasn't changed? Or really, this one's reverted to the way it was a few years ago. If you are taking the number one subway line to the South Ferry Station, you will hear a familiar announcement about where in the train you have to sit in order to get out.
11: Once again, you have to be one of the five cars in front of the conductor car in order to get
15: over the Staten Ferry. Sandy destroyed Staten a Staten brand new station at the Staten Island Ferry that finally had a long enough platform to accommodate full-size trains. So the MTA reopened the old station, which has a much shorter platform. And one more thing that hasn't changed. Sea levels are still rising. About a hundred yards south of the South Ferry subway station, along Manhattan's Battery, stands the official gauge that measured Sandy's 14-foot storm tide. It's a tall white pole sticking out of the water.
4: We know the sea level rise for this area because of this gauge and a few others like it.
15: Adam Sobel is a professor at Columbia University.
4: The the middle-of-the-road estimate now would probably be about a meter, which is three feet, in the next hundred years.
15: When we visited, the water was about six feet below the top of the seawall.
4: You can see that, you know, a couple feet of sea level rise, and high tide would be a few more feet on top of that, and you'd be pretty close to this top of the seawall already, even without any storm. So just from looking at this, you can tell that we're going to need to do something before too long.
15: Sobel says the more that time passes, the more our memories of Sandy will fade, and the less likely it is we will do anything significant at all. For WNYC, I'm Matthew Sherman.
0: Wrapping up our retrospective of Sandy and how it has changed us and our physical city is John Hockenberry, the host of The Takeaway. Sandy was a story that literally came to his front door, to the renovated waterfront warehouse apartment building where he lives with his family in Red Hook,
1: Brooklyn. I am so lucky. I'm the really lucky guy here. I almost feel a little intrusive speaking after everyone else has talked about what they're going through, what they went through. Lucky, this intense feeling of having been so very lucky. It is this that compels and restrains me, thinking about Sandy one year later and remembering all the little things it did, the evacuation, the displacement. And no, my two-year-old couldn't really be Batman for Halloween. He had the mask, but whatever the costume, we were all displaced, homeless, flooded-out folks from Red Hook, Brooklyn. There was no mask to cover that up. But lucky our building was built in the 1850s when the harbor flooded all the time and buildings were made to go literally with the flow. A century and a half it took for us modern New Yorkers to clog things up, to think we could just build a few walls, sink a few beams, and that would be that. (laughs) Oh, no. We were lucky. Not like the old man and the younger lady and their big, fat, tabby cat who would sit in the window in my neighborhood and watch people walking by. They're gone. House condemned by mold. They're just gone. We got power on pretty quick. That was lucky. And for weeks, I would look over at the projects and see those lights off and feel so sad and angry and fearful for those people trapped, some of them in wheelchairs like me, but with the lights off, the elevators not working on high floors, And so we all helped. We all rallied around those housing projects. They became the flagship brick buildings in our flotilla-flooded neighborhood of Red Hook. Get that power on. Get this up and running. We shouted. We talked, worked, delivered, volunteered. My kids were part of this theater sing-along group. They would climb the stairs and sing songs, and people would come to their doors grateful and smiling. And then they would fill out the city and federal forms so they could get assistance when they wouldn't answer their door to strangers before it was a flood of music and neighbors to repair a flood of wind and ocean so lucky we all were to look at those faces in the dark and the cold and then the light when the power came back on the fairway market opened and the bodega and the t-shirt place and all of our faces had lost their masks It wasn't the hipsters from Van Brunt anymore, the posse from Clinton Street, the old folks over on Sullivan, the artists on Conover, the Vietnam vet dudes on Reed. It was just us. Us. In Red Hook. Neighbors. And that's kind of the deal this Halloween. My son, now three, is going to be Iron Man this year. But there's no costume that can hide the fact that after Sandy, we're all going as neighbors no trick. It's just Sandy's unexpected and very human treat. I'm John Hockenberry.
0: To see our complete Sandy coverage and a slideshow, go to WNYC.org for the Life After Sandy series. Do you have a Sandy story to tell about how your life has changed? Find our Sandy minute-by-minute clock at WNYC.org. Life After Sandy, one year later, was put together by the reporters, producers, engineers, and editors of the WNYC Newsroom with help from The Brian Lehrer Show. Noted contributors include Mix Engineers, Paul Schneider, Wayne Schulmeister, James Coyle, and Merritt Jacob. Editors include Giselle Regatow, Matthew Sherman, Nancy Solomon, and Karen Frillman, who produced this program. Our Vice President for News is Jim Schachter. I'm Amy Eddings.